so we're jumping through a few verses today from a few different chapters. So first from Leviticus 10, verse 8 to 11. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Every creature that moves along the ground is to be regarded as unclean. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves along the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. It is unclean. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When anyone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin, that may be a defiling skin disease. They must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin and if the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is a defiling skin disease. When the priest examines that person, he shall pronounce them ceremonially unclean. If the shiny spot on the skin is white but does not appear to be more than skin deep and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest is to isolate the affected person for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine them, and if he sees that the sore is unchanged and has not spread in the skin, he is to isolate them for another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine them again, and if the sore has faded and has not spread in the skin, the priest shall pronounce them clean. It is only a rash. They must wash their clothes and they will be clean. But if the rash has spread in the skin... In their skin, after they have shown themselves to the priest to be pronounced clean, they must appear before the priest again. The priest is to examine that person, and if the rash has spread in the skin, he shall pronounce them unclean. It is a defiling skin disease. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. These are the regulations for any defiling skin disease, for a sore, for defiling moulds in fabric or in a house, and for a swelling, a rash or a shiny spot. 
to determine whether something is clean or unclean. These are the regulations for defiling skin diseases and defiling moulds. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. Let me just offer a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you again for your word this morning. Thank you that it is indeed profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. That it is where we come to encounter you and encounter Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I pray in this next little moment that as we open up these chapters and explore your word together, I pray, Father, that we would encounter Jesus here. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work amongst us, draw us close to you, that we may experience your grace more deeply. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I need reminders. I wonder if you've had this experience before. You're running perhaps a little bit late to your day of work. You're rushing to the office or wherever you're working. Coffee in hand. You sit down in a flurry and then a thought pops into your mind. It was bin night last night. Dang it. Forgot to put the bins out. And it was recycling bin night as well, so it's doubly painful. In our fast-paced modern world that you and I live in today, we need constant reminders. Whether it is calendars, phones, sticky notes, whatever it is, anything and everything to keep all things on track. Otherwise, we can just so easily not keep up with all the things on our to-do list, and we so easily forget. Well, it turns out when it comes to the Christian faith, We actually need reminders too. It works in a similar way. For it is not only earthly things that we become forgetful of. Our hearts are forgetful of spiritual things as well. I wonder if this is something that you've ever recognized in yourself. We have to ask, why is this? Why do we forget, even as Christians, the great truths of Scripture And about our God. Well, it turns out that the human heart is conditioned this way because of sin. In our sin, we don't naturally seek the things of God. This is why the gospel is good news for the sinfully forgetful heart. For through the gospel, Jesus promises his spirit to work in us. And scripture declares that actually all Christians are given a new heart. A new nature. Hearts that do want to start to turn towards God and His ways. And that do desire and know 
uh, want to know and understand the things of God. But because our sinful nature and our old selves still trouble us in this life, we still need reminders. We need to regularly come to Scripture to press on in the Christian faith. In Colossians 3, Paul reminds us of this. And he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. As we consider the ritual laws this morning in Leviticus, we find that they are God's gracious reminders to us. Gracious reminders of great spiritual realities. Important spiritual truths that lead us to the foot of the cross at Calvary. To the feet of Jesus and his spectacular grace. And so this morning there are three things that you and I need to be reminded of. The first is this. Sin separates. And it separates because of how much havoc it causes to all the relationships that we have. In the Bible reading, in the first few verses that Jeanette read in chapter 10, you see some really important verses there where God instructs and did instruct the priestly family of Aaron and his sons. Instructions that give us insight into the ritual laws that follow from chapter 11 onwards. There we see that God commanded the priests to teach the people to distinguish between different ritual states. Uh, And I have a slide there, hopefully, that shows this. Between the holy and common. And then the common is further described as two more categories, the clean and unclean. And so we're left with three categories, the holy, the clean, and the unclean. Now, understanding these ritual states was important because nothing that was unclean was to enter the tabernacle or temple. The temple was a holy place, a place where God chose to dwell and where the people, God's people could come and worship God and experience his covenantal love. And so anything that was ritually unclean and that was brought into the tabernacle would be ritually defiling to the tabernacle, showing disregard for God's holy character. One question that often gets asked about these laws is this. Well, if it is not good to be unclean, and that we need to be ritually clean before entering the, uh, the temple, was it because someone committed a specific sin that they became unclean? Or asked another way, was eating the wrong food or having a bodily discharge sinful in and of itself, or being a leper with a skin disease directly result because of a specific sin that the person did. Well, sometimes Scripture makes a really clear connection. For example, in Numbers 12, there we see this story of Miriam and Aaron the high priest challenge the God-given authority given to Moses. If you read the, the narrative there, what, what happened? Well, God comes down in a cloud And he speaks to Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. 
A bit like a parent who is acting like an umpire between their children that are fighting. You know, he started it first. What was the result? Well, once God had ascended again, it says there that Miriam became leprous. Her, her leprous skin disease directly resulted from that specific sin that she did. At other times, the Bible seems to show that physical defects were not a sign of a specific sin of an individual, but rather had a greater purpose. Uh, in John chapter 9, we see a prime example of that. The words should be up on the screen. It says, As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And if you read on in chapter 9, you see Jesus miraculously heal this blind man as a way of showing the gospel to those in that time. Now granted, blindness isn't mentioned as something that makes you specifically unclean in Leviticus 11 to 15, but it would disqualify you for being a priest in the tabernacle, according to Leviticus 21. And so what, what are we to make of all this? Is God just trying to be harsh by picking on people, especially when they're deemed to become ritually unclean by something that is kind of out of their control? I mean, what about the leper who we may never be able to enter God's presence if their skin disease persisted? I mean, that's just unfair, isn't it? Well, despite how harsh that might seem on the surface, we must understand that God's grace was present within these laws. We need to step back and see them as a whole. For taken as a whole, through them, God was trying to teach his people something critical, really important. That these external signs and ceremonies and symbols collectively taught an about an important internal reality. And that they do as a whole teach us that we are sinners, collectively. I wonder if you are conscious of this today. If you really do accept that. As we look out into our world today, our world wants to dazzle us with how great humanity is. How good we are at heart. What common virtues that we have. Sure, there are things that we do at times that isn't great. And maybe human history is a bit murky. But... On, on the whole, we're, we're improving as a species, aren't we? We're, we're moving on to better and greater things. We have a bright future. That's the message that our world tells us. But the Bible says, no, we aren't good. Yes, we might appear good at times. Yes, in God's common grace, we might not act as bad as we could. But deep down, we're, we're really only, only out for ourselves. Human nature is self-centered at heart. We're self-worshippers as, as, at heart, according to Scripture. People who struggle with pride that, as we struggle to consider ourselves to be sinners. And as we consider these ritual laws furthermore, 
they teach us just how destructive this sin is to our relationships. Just like how bodily discharges might make beds or couches richly unclean, our sin is contagious in a similar way. Our sin breaks the harmonious relationship that humanity had with the created world around us before the fall. Paul in Romans 8 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What he's saying there is that all of creation is affected by decay, disorder, and chaos, entropy. Our relationship with the creation around us is affected and marred by sin. But not only that, our relationships with other people is affected too. Just like a leper who was a social outcast and separated from others, we too experience great separation from others at times in our life. Our world is full of alienation and hostility between different people and different people groups. We have marriage separations, racism, amongst other things, war. All this points to the most tragic of separations caused by sin in how it separates you and I from God. How it severs the most important relationship people were designed to have. To know the love of God the Father, the author and giver of life, in whom we were designed to find our chief joy and fulfillment. And instead being left as spiritual orphans, separated from God himself. In this way, these laws are a timely reminder of just how terrible the plight of sin really is. I wonder how you might have experienced the plight of sin for yourself this morning. What relationships of the three mentioned that come to mind for you as you experience the brokenness of this world? The second reminder that you and I need to know this morning is this. Jesus reconciles. And this is hinted at through the gracious provisions found throughout the laws themselves. Most of the time, whenever someone found themselves in a ritually unclean state, the law itself provided a way for them to become clean again in order to once again be fit to enter the tabernacle and God's presence. Sometimes they might only simply need to wait a day, wash themselves with water, or if their leprosy did heal, the person could shave and wash and come and offer sacrifices and be restored to God. Through these laws then, not only does God teach us that he takes sin really seriously, but he teaches that he really cares for us and that God has a deep desire to reconcile spiritually impure people to himself. As we open up our New Testaments, we see just how God does this. 
For it is in the four Gospels that we read of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who makes us clean and washes away our sin. The four Gospels give story after story of Jesus encountering, encountering the ritually unclean. But instead of making Jesus unclean, what we find is Jesus makes unclean people holy. His holiness was contagious. His holiness overcomes the contagion of sin. In this way, the four Gospels paint a wonderful picture of Jesus' heart for the lost, the outcast, the vulnerable, the weak. Jesus had a real soft spot to those in need. He healed far and wide. He healed the lame, the blind, the sick. He raised people from the dead. He fed thousands of hungry poor people. He cast out demons from those spiritually in captivity. And he welcomed the vulnerable little children to his presence. But despite how amazing these signs and miracles were, they weren't his chief purpose on earth, his first priority. No, his first priority was dealing with the deeper disease, the chief disease, the disease behind every other disease. That is, he came to miraculously cure us from our sin. Doing so by setting his eyes on the cross and dying there before miraculously rising again from the dead. All this to reconcile God's people to himself. In Colossians 1 from verse 19 to 22, it teaches us there, For in him, in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. On the cross, Jesus overcame our separation from God by experiencing separation in our place. Experiencing what it was like to be cut off from God, suffering and dying as a loner, as an outcast, outside the walls of Jerusalem on Golgotha, the cross. Our world tells us that as long as we prioritize earthly concerns, things will be okay. Everything will turn out just fine. Just make sure your pay increases at the same rate as inflation and you'll be okay. Just make sure your children get the best education and succeed in life with a good job and things will work out. Just make sure the the government fires up another coal plant or pegs a few more wind turbines in the ground and life will simply cruise on nice and brightly. But the gospel flips all this on its head. Things are are not fine, nor will they be fine without Jesus and his work of reconciliation between us and God. For it is through Jesus that God offers the world what the world cannot provide, a restored relationship with God our Creator, That is real treasure. That is real security. That is real joy. And something that can never be taken away from God's people.
But these laws help remind us that not only does Jesus do this miraculous and wonderful work of reconciliation, but actually these laws teach us that Jesus also separates. How does it teach us this as well? Well, they do so by reminding us of Christ's calling for his followers. It reminds us what we've been reconciled for and how we are called to live holy lives dedicated to God. For God's people in Israel, uh, these laws played an important role in distinguishing them from the surrounding pagan nations. This is because it is likely that many of these laws, at least part of them, were designed and meant to oppose false worship, false worship practices uh, excuse me, conducted in the other nations around them. Uh, for example, sex made, uh, sex between a husband and wife in these laws is said to make them unclean for a day. But this would not have been because sex was, is bad in God's eyes. For we know clearly from Genesis that it teaches us that within the boundary of heterosexual male-to-female marriage, it's part of God's good design. It's good for us. But rather, it would seem that there was other purposes for it here. And, and it's quite likely that it was used to combat the practice of cult prostitution that was present in their worship practices in the pagan nations. Or, if, or there may be other reasons for it too. The food laws too would have set Israel apart, with them not eating some of the things that other nations might have eaten. In this way, the purity laws were a clear witness to other nations that they stood apart, that separated as God's people, they were chosen and His treasured possession. Likewise, the New Testament says that Christians stand apart. And by doing so, we become His witnesses to the world. Not by practicing ritual laws, but through living holy lives. Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, He says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, Let such good lives among the uh, live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you that uh, though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us called out from worldly living christians have a new prof- uh, profound purpose through jesus no longer living for ourselves jesus calls us to live lives dedicated to god The question for you and I this morning is, is your life shining with the light of Jesus? Do your non-Christian friends look to see that things and something's different about you, about how you live and and what your priorities are? Do your non-Christian friends know that you're a Christian? Uh, The constant temptation for the Christian is to, to blend in with the crowd. 
But Jesus calls his disciples to, yes, live within the culture, but without giving in to the culture's idols. Whether it's greed, power, or, or sinful pleasures, our conduct should challenge the culture's idols, showing that we, what we have in Christ is, is far more superior, that is far more precious and valuable to us than living worldly lives. I wonder if your life shows others just how precious you believe Jesus is and your relationship with God is. But for all this to be true for you and I, and for us to indeed know that God is the supreme valuable thing for us, we must indeed be followers of Jesus and his disciples. These critical reminders then are only of benefit to you and I if we are indeed accounted amongst Jesus' flock. How, how, then, how then do we become a disciple of Jesus? Well, first, Jesus calls us to renounce your sin, to turn away from the sinful pleasures of the world. The Bible calls this repentance. We get a picture of what that repentance looks like in Mark 8, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save us. Jesus calls us to live a life dedicated to him now, rather than to ourselves, even willing to suffer for him. Secondly, to become a disciple of Jesus, Jesus calls us to embrace him and his grace. The Bible says that we do this by having faith in Jesus and his salvation through the cross. Perhaps the most famous Bible verse is John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus, will you come to him? Will you find true joy and fulfillment in him? And if you do, Jesus will cry out, clean, clean, and you shall never live alone with God always with you. And your dwelling place will be forever inside the camp, counted amongst God's people for all eternity. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these really important reminders this morning. morning, That we are reminded of our sin and, and the effects the tragic effects of sin in this world, in our lives, in all the relationships that we have. And Father, we are most grieved that that's caused damage to our relationship with you. And how sin cut us off from your goodness. Our rebellion meant that you turned your face away from us. And that we were spiritual orphans, outcasts, 
away from your love and presence. But Father, we want to just thank you again for what you've done for us in Jesus and how you reconcile us to yourself and that we can experience new life in you. Father, we thank you so much for the joy that we have in you that no matter what happens in our earthly life, no matter what ailments we might feel in this life, we know that in you we have eternal life. And Father, you have promised one day that we will be given even resurrected bodies. That even if we feel the brokenness of our bodies today, we know that you one day will make us new in that way as well. Father, as we are reminded of our call to live holy lives, I pray, Father, that our lives would reflect your holiness, that we would shine brightly with your love to others. Father, will you draw us to you this morning? I pray, Father, that if there is anyone amongst us who, who doesn't know you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you might work in them, that you graciously might reveal the wonder of your grace. Amen.